We're going to read the scriptures now. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 5. So the fifth chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, was, I suppose uh, John Owen would say the letter of Paul uh, to the Hebrews that we uh, mentioned yesterday. That, that's uh, debatable. Well, welcome to any of you who are here for the... Uh, you weren't here yesterday. It was a very good day yesterday, and I hope that uh, you'll benefit uh, also today. Welcome back, uh, those of you who are here again. So, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm just going to read the first 10 verses. Hebrews chapter 5, first 10 verses. I'm, I'm using the ESV. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray and uh, commit our session to the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for yesterday and the blessings that uh, so many of us received then. Uh, We pray for this uh, new day and the uh, sessions ahead, and especially for this one now. Uh, We ask that you you will uh, come near your servant as he speaks. Pray that you'll be able to remember the things that he uh, has meditated on and wants to uh, get across to us. We commit to you... uh, the question time as well, that you'll, you'll give us facility and that you'll help us. We pray that we may be a blessing to each other. We do pray that uh, what we do today uh, will be for your glory. We think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And we thank you from our hearts that we have such a saviour. And we know that uh, our knowledge of him is, is so scant. Uh, and we pray that it might grow, not, not that uh, our heads might be merely filled, but that our lives then might uh, more reflect our wonderful Saviour. Do draw near to us, do bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we warmly welcome our speaker, Benedict Bird. Uh, you should have a, a handout sheet, I think they've been put on the seats, so you've got them. I asked, so is my ignorance, I asked uh, Benedict if, if this was copyright, which he looked at me and he said, well, of course. Uh, I think that's what copyright means uh, but he said we are free to uh, reproduce it as well so uh, that's a, a, verbal, uh, a verbal agreement there so welcome uh, Benedict we're looking forward to hearing you I can't see where it is So, we do not know a great deal about the life, or indeed the genealogy, of this man. As one writer puts it, the man himself remains strangely elusive. But he is a man who consistently points us to Christ, and we have a great deal to learn from him about the priesthood of Christ. So, I'm not referring to Melchizedek, but to the man who was called the Prince of Divines. And that accolade was given to him by the man they called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Jim Packer asserts that by common consent he is the greatest among Puritan theologians. 
and not to be outdone on the hagiography, Carl Truman says that he was quite possibly the finest theological mind that England ever produced, and certainly the finest in the 17th century. But there are other reasons why we are considering the views of John Owen on the priesthood at this 2016 conference on Melchizedek. Another reason, of course, is that this year is the 400th anniversary of his birth. Maybe it's the 4,000th anniversary of Melchizedek, I don't know. Another is that Christ's priesthood was a major focus of his writing. And he also wrote more than most people have ever written about Melchizedek. So if those reasons are sufficient for you, then I will proceed with what can only be a surface-skimming survey of Owen's thoughts on Christ's priesthood. And I want to ask an attempt to answer four questions before I suggest an applicatory conclusion or two. And these questions are on your handout. First, simply, to what extent was the priesthood of Christ a major focus of Owen's work? Did he write a thousand words on the subject or a million? And that, of course, should be an easy question, because when did he write a thousand words on any subject? Except, sadly, his own life, about which we do not know a great deal. Secondly, why was the priesthood a major focus of his work? What were the wrong ideas that he was rejecting or correcting? Thirdly, and this is the the largest chunk, how was his teaching distinctive? Does his thought have a coherent structure? Is it biblical? Is it persuasive? And then fourthly, remembering the conference title, what did Owen have to say about Melchizedek in particular? And if I run out of time, I fear that that's the section that will fall on the wrong side of the guillotine. I'm not sure guillotine has a right side, but there we are. (laughs) So the first question, to what extent was Christ's priesthood a major focus of Owen's work? I would estimate on the basis of some careful calculations carried out on the back of a very small postage stamp that around a quarter of the eight million words in Owen's works and perhaps even a majority of the two million words contained in his seven-volume Hebrews commentary might reasonably be considered to fall under the rubric of the priesthood of Christ. I did not immediately grasp when Gary asked me to speak on this subject that he was asking me to summarise a good quarter of Owen's literary output. But leaving numbers to the side, Owen himself would leave us in no doubt that Christ's priesthood was a major concern of his. In his Hebrews commentary, he says that the priesthood of Christ is the principal foundation of the faith and consolation of the church. And elsewhere, he wrote, whatever Christ did on earth for the church in obedience, suffering, and offering up of himself. Whatever he does in heaven, in intercession, and appearance in the presence of God for us, it all entirely belongs unto his priestly office. And in these things alone does the soul of a convinced sinner find relief when he seeks after deliverance from the state of sin and acceptance with God. So Carl Truman's assessment is, I think, a fair one when he says that while not dominating Owen's theology, the priesthood appears to have been something of a preoccupation with him. He had a peculiar fascination with it, he says. Another writer argues that it is the principal theme of Owen's theology. (coughs) And that, in my view, is going too far. I would sooner argue that the principal theme, the backbone of his theology, is the divinely instituted covenants. Owen himself said, all theology is based on a covenant. Covenant, he said, is the very center wherein all of the lines concerning the grace of God and our own duty do meet, wherein the whole of religion doth consist. So if I can offer you a bird's eye view of Owen's theology, you must put our Trinitarian God at the top of your diagram followed by his decrees and covenants, and then move to Christ's threefold prophet-priest-king office, and then focus on the priestly office in particular. And when you've done that, depending on the size of your handwriting, I think that that should still leave the priesthood somewhere pretty close to the middle of the page. 
At this point, I was going to say a word or two about where in Owen's works you will find his thoughts on the priesthood. To save time, I'm going to leave that to questions at the end if you want to ask. But plainly much, certainly not all much, will be found in his Hebrews commentary. At the beginning of which, there is a somewhat amusing comment by Owen himself. He says he's really not sure whether he's going to have much to add to what has already been written on Hebrews and wonders whether it's going to be worthwhile for him to cast his might into the sanctuary by writing it at all. Well, I can't tell you what a might was worth in 1668, but even allowing for 350 years of inflation to describe two million words as a might seems to be something of an understatement. So those are a few reasons for concluding that the priesthood was a major focus of Owen's work and that it stood at the centre of his theology. Second question, why was it a major focus of his work? What was it about his context that required it to be a, be a major focus? One answer is that the Reformed Orthodox understanding of the priesthood was very much under attack in Owen's day. Penal substitutionary atonement was under attack. Is there anything new under the sun? Not really. The same objections go round and round. Which is why we profit greatly by thinking with Owen as deeply and clearly as we can on this subject. These attacks, said Owen, were, were principally due to the craft and malice of Satan. But Satan uses agents. We should not think of them all as heretics. Owen didn't. But even innocent and well-meaning errors can work great mischief. So with whom was he engaging? The Arminians, of course, the Arminians will always be with us. Arminius asserted that Christ died for every individual in the sense that the price of the death of Christ was given for everyone. Everything necessary and indeed possible on God's side had been done to save every member of the human race. Thereafter, it was for each individual to choose salvation or not. God's intention was to save everyone, but the success or failure of his plan ultimately was in the hands of man. Next, the Amaraldians. One of the Amaraldians with whom Owen interacted was one John Cameron. Like the Arminians, Cameron argued that Christ died to save all men. He procured the grace of redemption for all men equally. But God then only savingly applies that redemptive effect to the elect. So, as with the Arminians, Christ died for all, a medicine chest gets filled with enough saving medicine for everyone in the world. But the medicine in the end is only given to the elect. That's where they differ from the uh, Arminians. This particular Mr. Cameron won over many Frenchmen to his cause and indeed many in this country, unlike a more recent Mr. Cameron, we might say. But he failed to win over Dr. Owen. Then there were the Roman Catholics, they also believed that Christ died for all. The Council of Trent had asserted that though he died for all, yet do not all receive the benefit of his death, but only those whom the merit of his passion is communicated unto those. The communication of merit then depends on prevenient grace and man's cooperation and consent and on the church as dispensary. No wonder there is little assurance to be had in Catholicism with all of those provisos. Owen also took issue with the role that they invented for their own so-called priests and their mass, which, uh, by which they blasphemously, yea, hourly, re-crucify the Lord of glory. And then lastly, the Sicinians. These were the anti-Trinitarian rationalists. They denied Christ's divinity. They denied penal substitutionary atonement. They regarded Christ as having made no priestly offering in his death. Only in his heavenly intercession did they grant that he was a priest. And then, only a metaphorical one. Owen regarded the Sicinians as propagators of poison, no less. And concerning them, he says, God is pleased to exercise and try the faith of the church by heresies, which are fierce, pertinacious, and subtle oppositions made to the truth. So he's saying that there is nothing and no one, not even the Sicinians, that God will not ultimately use for his glory. 
exercising and trying the faith of the church by heresies. What all of these opponents had in common was that none of them regarded Christ's priestly sacrifice as being in itself effective for saving anyone. The Arminians, Amiraldians, and Catholics regarded it as procuring a potential salvation for everyone, but actual salvation for no one. Something else was required. And the Sicinians did not regard it as procuring even potential salvation. The priesthood, then, was a major focus of Owen's work because it lies at the centre of Christ's saving work. And this centre was very much under attack. So, third question. How was Owen's teaching on the priesthood of Christ distinctive? To answer this, let us allow Owen to take us on a journey from eternity to time and then back to eternity again. Flavian took us on a redemptive historical journey yesterday from Genesis to Hebrews. Owen is going to take us on a rather longer journey, but not in as many minutes. Let us begin with Christ's appointment in eternity. The origin of the priestly office lies in the eternal counsels of God, he said. That is because nothing happens in history which has not been determined in eternity. Or, as a friend of Owen's put it, nothing is here transacted in time which was not from eternity concluded in the counsel of God's will. I wonder when you last heard or preached that on a Sunday morning. But that was Owen's view of the origin of Christ's priesthood. It is the product of the personal transactions which were from all eternity in the Holy Trinity concerning mankind. God does not make it up as he goes along. Christ's priesthood was no mere afterthought. It was ordained in eternity. And this flows straight out of Owen's orthodox theology of the Trinity. In eternity, Father, Son and Spirit share one essence, but subsist in three persons. There is unity in their essence. God's decrees flow from his undivided will. But there are mutual relations between their three persons. There is mutual love between them. There is concurrence of purpose between them. They have distinct actings and operations, even within the Trinity. The will of God, says Owen, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, is but one. But in respect of their distinct personal actings, this will is appropriated to them respectively, so that the will of the Father and the will of the Son may be considered distinctly in this business. So one will, not three, that would be heading towards tritheism, but distinct interpersonal actings of this one will between, between the three persons. The Father is the originator. He proposes that the Son should undertake the role of mediator as prophet, priest, and king in order to redeem and call together a people to worship him for eternity. He commits to accepting the Son's priestly work on behalf of those people, the Son consents. His willingness is vital because this role involves an act of infinite love, that is natural to a person who is God, but also infinite condescension, and that is not natural to a person who is God. These are the counsels of the will of God, wherein lies the foundation of the priesthood of Christ, declared as a covenant in Scripture. Actually, Owen is not too fussy about what you call it. He says, call it what you please. Covenant, compact, concurrence, convention. As long as it begins with C. <laughs> but this is the origin of Christ's appointment to the threefold office, the covenant of redemption. So I've been describing and putting into words what is shown in the top half of the diagram on your handout. And we will be seeing how this covenant then has its outworkings in the temporal realm, below the line, as it were. But above the line, Owen says, nothing is here transacted in time which was not from eternity concluded in the counsel of God's will. If Owen had left us some diagrams, it might have saved him a few words. But why did God go to such lengths just to gather some men and women to worship him in heaven? 
His purpose, says Owen, is that all creation should manifest his righteousness, grace, love, and wisdom, wherein he will be glorified. And then this rather lovely quote. A design in Christ shines out from his bosom that was lodged there from eternity to recover things to such an estate as shall be exceedingly to the advantage of his glory, infinitely above what at first appeared in Eden, for putting sinners into inconceivably a better condition than they were in before the entrance of sin. Application, we need never wish ourselves back into the Garden of Eden. God has prepared something inconceivably better for his people. This is the divine plan of our great triune God who knows the end from the beginning and will bring it about principally through the the priesthood of Christ. So that's the eternal angle. Now let's begin some time travel and move below the line and consider the pre-incarnation revelation of Christ's priesthood. What does Owen have to say about Christ's priestly role prior to his incarnation? Here are just some headline propositions. First, man had no need of a priest before the fall. There was no priesthood in the state of innocency, he says. The essential role of a priest is to offer sacrifices for sin. There was no need for a priest before there was sin. Nor could there be any proper sacrifice before the fall, since any sacrifice properly so called is made by killing or slaying the thing sacrificed. Nothing died before the fall. Nothing needed to. But Owen does say that in the state of innocency, every one, every person, was to be a priest for himself. That is, to perform in his own name the things which he had to do according to the law of his creation. And you can see here Owen is leaving just enough space for seeing Adam as having that typical threefold office, pointing forward to the second Adam, that we mentioned yesterday. But it follows that Christ would not have become incarnate but for the fall. Adam had no need for a mediating priest before the fall. The Socinians argued that even if the fall had not happened, Christ would have become incarnate because that would manifest God to creation. They even suggested that God would want to maximize his glory by becoming man to which Owen retorts, they suppose that God would take unto himself the glory of uniting our nature unto him. Why so? Because they find how greatly and gloriously he is exalted by so doing. In other words, how flattering for God it must have been the thought of taking up the nature of man. No, Christ's incarnation was only necessary for him to save sinners and to suggest otherwise is curious speculation destitute of scriptural testimony. What about after the fall? That was the era when Christ's priesthood was much prophesied and manifested. The first manifestation, of course, was in Genesis chapter 3:15, the Proto-Euangelion. Christ was to come as the priestly serpent crusher. But next, his priesthood was to be manifested by God moving men to offer sacrifices. All of the sacrifices, even all sacrifices, including pagan ones, from those from Adam to those of the sons of Aaron, were shadowy prefigurations of the true sacrifice to come. What is true of all Old Testament sacrifices is true of all Old Testament priests. They were all shadowy prefigurations of the true priest to come. So, for example, of the Mosaic priests, Owen says, they were umbratile. Do you like that word? Umbratile, shadowy. Typical, figurative, temporary, and liable to such infirmities as exceedingly eclipsed or hid the glory of their office. So you think of them in their amazing outfits and precious stones and all the rest. All of that eclipsed the glory of the true office to which they were pointing. Their purgation of sins was in itself, says Owen, but typical, external, and representative of that which was true and real. The closest prefiguration to whom we shall return was, of course, Melchizedek. But only Christ was ever the real and proper high priest of the church. So surely we want to ask then, were these shadow priests with all of their shadow sacrifices 
effective? Did they work? Owen says, not in themselves. By their own innate efficacy, they neither did nor could expiate, deal with sin. But what they did do was direct the eyes of the faithful to look unto the great future priest and sacrifice who alone was to make atonement for sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. The whole economy of the priesthood and sacrifices had no other end or use but to prefigure and represent those of the Lord Christ. Those in Old Testament times who did put their trust in the reality beyond the metaphor were saved just as we are. So Owen can say, no man was ever saved but by virtue of the new covenant and the mediation of Christ therein. There has only ever been one means of salvation. Final point before we move on. Christ was not active in his priesthood before the incarnation. Owen says he could not be active in his priesthood because he was not yet clothed with flesh and made partaker of the children, of the nature of the children. But nonetheless, the benefits of his priesthood were communicated to all believers from the foundation of the world. There has only ever been one means of salvation. So those were the prophetic prefigurations of the priesthood. And then Christ arrived. So we go from the incarnation to the cross, Christ's humiliation and oblation. The next event then in salvation history was the inauguration of Christ's priestly ministry upon his conception and then in a narrower sense upon his baptism. For this most important stage I can again only give you the headlines but then I will say a little more about the errors with which he interacted. The headlines are these. The purpose of Christ's priestly ministry on earth was that he might become the once-for-all-time sin offering. The punishment for sin is death. A sin offering must be a life offering. Not only that, he who was to be the sacrifice was also to be the sacrificer. There was then a double necessity for the incarnation. To be the sacrificer, representing man, he had to live as a man. To be the sacrifice, he had to be able to die as a man. But Christ's life offering did not just consist of his life offering on the cross. Every moment of his life on earth was part of his offering, or his oblation, as Owen tends to refer to it. An oblatio is something that is offered up. So in the diagram I've referred to his oblation during his state of humiliation, referring to his time on earth. Every moment on earth involved condescension or humiliation for the second person of the Trinity, yet particularly in his death on the cross. But really, Christ's life offering lasted 33 years, not six hours or maybe 16 hours. 33 years of active obedience, not just six hours of suffering. The next thing to say is that Owen is keen to examine carefully all of the ways that Christ's priestly work on earth tracks and fulfills everything he finds in the Old Testament, all of the Old, priestly, Old Testament priestly types. We've seen already that the only purpose of the Old Testament types was to point forward to Christ's fulfillment of them. So when he talks about Christ's work on earth, he's always looking back and forth to the Old Testament to show how the antitype fulfills the type. Christ fulfills the type. So I'll give you a longer quote here to give you a flavour of his thinking. In this sacrifice of Christ, all of these Old Testament types meet in one. He himself was priest, sacrifice, altar and incense. He was also the true tabernacle, the only way and means of our approach unto God. The human nature of Christ is the only true tabernacle, wherein God would dwell personally and substantially. So as the old high priest brought the offering to the altar, so Christ brought himself to Jerusalem, Owen tracks this journey, and then to Gethsemane, and then came the shedding of blood upon the cross-shaped altar at Golgotha, and then followed uh, his entrance into the most holy place. 
So the types of the Old Covenant were exactly fulfilled in a spiritual and glorious manner by our Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest of the church. That's what happened, but what did that achieve? Owen answers this most concisely in his greater catechism. Four things. By his offering, he satisfied the justice of God. By his ransom, he redeemed us from the power of sin, death, and hell. By his blood, he ratified the new covenant. Thereby, he became the covenant head, purchasing for us all spiritual blessings needful for our coming unto God. So, satisfaction, redemption, ratification, acquisition. Four things. That's what our great high priest achieved on earth. But what were the contrary ideas that his opponents were peddling? The first and worst error, I think I've listed seven on your sheets, the first and worst error was the outright rejection by the Sicinians of Christ's oblation, his offering. We've said already that the Sicinians denied that Christ's earthly life was an offering at all. They denied any need for a sin offering. His priestly work, in their minds, only took place in heaven. He presented himself there as a metaphorical offering and received from God the power to bestow blessings upon men. They utterly rejected Owen's view that the oblation of Christ consisted in an expiatory sacrifice making atonement for sin. And this is where all of Owen's careful spade work in the Old Testament yields its fruit. What on earth was the purpose of the Old Testament teaching about the sacrifices? Why are we given countless examples of the sacrificing of bulls and goats? If the only thing that mattered, the only thing that actually pointed forward to the New Testament reality was the annual entry of the high priest into the Holy of Holies, why they're saying forget the sacrifices, just look at him walking into heaven. Surely, says Owen, all of the Old Testament metaphors must point forward to a reality. Why would God give 2,000 years worth of priestly metaphors just to point forward to another metaphor. As Owen puts it, does not the substance, Christ, exceed the shadow? If Christ was just the shadow, then surely the Old Testament priests were more excellent than Christ. Can you see how topsy-turvy it is? The Sicinians are turning the whole argument of Hebrews on its head. The whole instructive part of the Old Testament must be rejected, says Owen, if the Sicinians are right. Christ, he insisted, was the true priest to whom all of the old ones pointed. Christ provided real atonement for sin on the cross before he entered heaven. Christ obtained eternal redemption before he entered into the holy place, Hebrews 9, verse 12. How many ministers in our day have the same desire to reduce Christ to a mere example and teacher, thereby denying the reality of his priestly work and sacrifice There are Sicinians active in many churches today, effectively denying Christ's oblation, even if they've never heard of the word Sicinian. Owen concludes, men do but dream of the pardon of sin or acceptance with God without atonement. Second error, more briefly, and again we see plenty of this in our day, the denial of imputation. So say the Sicinians, how can one man take upon himself the death penalty due due for the law-breaking of another? Death penalties are not transferable. The problem, replies Owen, is that you do not understand the covenants. Pursuant to the covenant of redemption, Christ was appointed to be our covenant head, our federal head. He came to earth as our covenant head. Under his headship, his people are brought into spiritual union with him. Union with Christ, pursuant to the covenants, is a fully adequate legal basis for the imputation of our sins to him and his righteousness to us. So says Owen, it is no unrighteousness if the hand offend that the head be smitten. Christ is our head. We are his members. It is no unrighteousness if the hand offend that the head be smitten. If you reject the idea of union pursuant to covenant, what basis is there then for imputation? 
suppose you go into some speculative thinking as Mr. Shedd did that we were thinking about yesterday. Christ's self-offering has value for us, not automatically or intrinsically or inevitably. Why should it? But only because the Father has covenanted with his Son to accept it in our stead. If you run from the covenants, you run from Christ. There is no difficulty with the notion of imputation if Christ is our covenant head. Discuss. Third error, the denial of Christ's active obedience. This one is not as bad as the last two, but it was heading in a Socinian direction. The Arminians rather liked it. Even some reformed men, like Thomas Gattaca, argued that the only relevant sacrificial act was Christ's act of death on the cross. His passive obedience achieved everything, so his active obedience, meaning his righteous life from conception to Calvary, must have been merely preparatory. Now, it wouldn't be difficult to think of a a proof text or two that would appear to support that assertion. We preach Christ crucified, absolutely. But God is, of course, speaking there in shorthand. Owen was clear that we needed not only Christ's death to redeem us and lift us from the penalty of death, but we also needed his righteous life. We needed not just the debt cancellation, but the positive righteousness. And that brings us to Christ's role as our surety, our surety or our guarantor. Man has always, since Eden, been required to obey God's laws. Has he done so? Clearly not. If you cannot do what is required of you, then you need a guarantor, a surety. I imagine there'll be some parents here of children going off to university and having to sign those extortionate um, guarantee agreements with children's landlords. Well, happily for us, part of Christ's priestly office is to be our surety. Christ alone has the full treasury, earned through his lifelong obedience, to be able to stand as our surety. So Owen says, Christ is to pay that which the elect owe and to do what is to be done by them which they cannot perform. The Lord Christ fulfilled the whole law for us. He did not undergo, he did not only undergo the penalty of it due unto our sins, but also yielded that perfect obedience which it did require. So everything that Christ did on earth, he did as our priest and our surety to bring us to God. Fourth error, the denial that Christ exactly satisfied or paid our debt. Owen debated this question with Richard Baxter for a decade. It's a little technical. I'm just going to skim the surface of it. But the question in essence is, does our debt to God correspond exactly with what Christ paid? Did Christ pay what we owed? Baxter argued that Christ only made an equivalent payment, which God could then accept or refuse at his pleasure. He didn't like the idea that our redemption followed automatically from Christ's death on the cross as night follows day, which it would if our debt was fully and exactly paid. Baxter was afraid that that would lead to antinomianism, the idea that Christians can do as they please. They are justified before they are born even. God's laws no longer apply to them. Baxter wanted to leave room for God's discretion. So he insisted that Christ had only made an equivalent payment, which God could accept or refuse. Owen said, no, Christ has paid our debts in full. We were due to die. He has died in our place. Our redemption will follow as night follows day. There is always some delay before night follows day. That's my bad poetry, not Owen's. We are not saved before we actually come to repent and believe. But still, redemption must surely follow because it has been purchased in full already. Baxter was Amaraldian in his atonement theology, but Owen was concerned that he was sounding just a little bit Socinian at this point. Owen would not accept any arguments that weakened the direct link between Christ's death and a man's forgiveness, because such would undermine the efficacy of the atonement. And neither should we accept those arguments. 
Fifth error, the assertion that God simply could have overlooked our sin. Generous creditors are perfectly free to cancel debts that are owed to them. And who is more generous than God? Why should not God, as our supremely gracious creditor, simply cancel our debts, in which case Christ need not have gone to the cross? Very briefly, that is an overly commercial view of our debts, and it's an overly voluntarist view of God, meaning he can do as he pleases, unconstrained by such attributes as truth and justice. The Sicinians had this voluntarist view of God. But Owen says that God could not simply overlook our debts, our sins, or cancel them on a whim. He must do justice. Once sinners had been created and had rebelled, God must punish their sin. He must either punish the sinner or the covenantly appointed substitute, Jesus Christ. If God could simply have disregarded sin, as Owen puts it, with a nod, without any trouble, then what sufficient reason could be given, pray, why he should lay those sins so easily remissible to the charge of his most holy son and on their account subject him to such dreadful sufferings, he asks. Why, pray? Supposing that God wished to save sinners, there was no other way but through the priesthood of Christ. Sixth error, the assertion that Christ's ransom was paid to Satan. This was a theory promoted by Origen in the third century. He argued that Christ's ransom was paid not to God, but to the devil. It's a heresy that has found many followers in the Eastern and Western Church down the years. Owen rejected it as the highest blasphemy. Satan was to be conquered, not satisfied. Seventh error, the assertion that Christ died for all, whether they would be finally saved or not. Uh, And this error I will address under my next heading, Christ's intercession, and I'll do that because a major plank of Owen's particular redemption argument uh, is the assertion that those for whom Christ died are those for whom he intercedes. He holds those two things together. So in summary, all of these errors, one way or another, tend to weaken the efficacy of Christ's priesthood and hence to weaken what we today call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Over the centuries and in our day, they come round and round again. Read Owen and your arm will be strengthened before you go into bat. So where next? We now follow Christ to where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father. From the resurrection to his session, that is to say, Christ's exaltation and intercession. His exaltation followed his humiliation. Owen says, the person of Christ, as to his divine nature, was always on the throne. His divine person can no more really leave the throne of majesty than cease to be. It is Christ in his human nature that is capable of this real exaltation and real addition of glory. Christ, thus exalted, now exercises the second part of his priestly office as he intercedes for his people. In other words, after his oblation, his intercession. And once again, Owen ties this very closely to the Old Testament imagery Leviticus 16 in particular, of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So after the typical bulls and goats had been sacrificed outside the Holy of Holies, that's the oblation, the high priest entered the most holy place and presented the blood of the beasts to God as the sin offering on behalf of his people. Likewise, Christ, in his human nature, entered heaven and presented the true sin offering, his own blood, to God on behalf of his people. And the Old Testament types, having then been fulfilled, they must necessarily pass away and be discontinued. Then, in accordance with what had been settled in the covenant of redemption, the Father accepts the true sin offering in full expiation of the sins of his people. So what is happening in heaven at this very moment? Christ is making continual appearance for us in the presence of God by virtue of his office as high priest over the house of God, representing the efficacy of his oblation, accompanied with tender care, love and desires for the welfare, supply, deliverance and salvation of the church. 
and some key words in that quotation, are representing the efficacy of his ablation. I think that's on your handout. He does not need to be praying verbally to his father every second of the day. Just by his presence as eternal priest, his offering is presented or held out to God. And the result of this is that everything that Christ purchased for his people during his humiliation, his life on earth, is bestowed upon them and applied to them. This work of application being principally the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that this is what Christ is doing for us at this moment? Well, the best guide, says Owen, is John chapter 17. The high priestly prayer of John 17 gives us, in his words, the best estimate and representation of his present intercession that we are able to comprehend. I wonder if you had thought of John 17 in that way before. I don't think I had. As a result of Christ's intercession, faith was bestowed upon us, righteousness was imputed to us, and we are brought into union with him. That is how all the benefits of that eternally ordained, blood-bought, spirit-applied union come to each of us. But for whom does Christ intercede? And if you're flagging at this point, this is the last tricky issue in the paper. For whom does Christ intercede? Particular redemption, the coextensivity of Christ's oblation and intercession. Owen argues compellingly for particular atonement. That is, that Christ died intentionally for the elect, and he intercedes for the elect only. And he has literally dozens of arguments, but many of them are based on the priesthood. Again, he did that spade work in the Old Testament, and here he is, is bringing the fruit from it. In particular, he says, says that there is a close, indeed inseparable connection between Christ's oblation, his self-offering, and his intercession. Indeed, the whole Old Testament teaches that priests were appointed to make offerings and intercession, not for strangers or foreigners, but for the people that they were appointed to serve. A priest who offers but does not intercede, or who intercedes but does not offer, is, in Owen's words, but half a priest. The Old Testament priests were types of Christ. If they offered and interceded for the people of God, and them only, then so does Christ, unless you want to argue that Christ is but half a priest. So Owen says, it was not the whole world that the old high priest offered for. Hence, it is the elect people alone for whom our great high priest did offer and doth intercede. In other words, according to Owen, you simply have not understood the Bible's teaching on the priestly office if you want to argue that Christ died generally for the world, but only intercedes for the elect. And it's notable that some of those who interact with Owen and take issue with him on this issue of particular atonement pay very little attention to the priesthood in their writings. They focus on what they can take from the, the New Testament. Um, so the coextensivity of Christ's oblation on earth and intercession in heaven is shown in the second diagram on your handout. And that perfect coextensivity flows from the perfect coextensivity of Christ's intention. He had the same intention in eternity in the covenant of redemption and in his oblation, looking back to his life on earth, and in his intercession. What he intended to achieve, he achieved. Carl Truman summarizes Owen's views on this quite helpfully. He says that Christ's death and intercession are two sides of the same coin whose purpose and value are determined by the covenant of redemption. It is not the case that God had a grand plan in eternity, but has only achieved modest success in its fulfillment. Owen says, I cannot understand what advantage it is to affirm that most of them for whom Christ offered himself shall have no benefit thereby. Neither can I find in the scripture a double design of Christ in giving himself for mankind towards some, the elect, that they may be redeemed from all iniquity and towards others that they may yet be left under the guilt and power of their sins. It's a sober thought, isn't it? Is there really anyone who is going to complain from hell that Christ was punished for me, but look where I am now? No, says Owen. 
everyone for whom Christ died must actually have applied unto him all of the good things purchased by his death. It's a nice idea that Christ simply purchased a vast supply of ointment in a box, as Owen puts it, by his death, which God could then apply to the elect, or sinners could reach out for, if you go with the Arminian view, as and when they pleased. But Owen is very sure that the ointment in a box idea is not what scripture teaches. He says it is derogatory of both father and son, What does it mean for Christ to die ineffectually for the world? What does it mean for God's justice if he accepts Christ's death as a ransom and redemption for all and then demands a second payment from those sinners who decline the medicine paid for by Christ's blood? Is it probable, asks Owen, that God calls any to a second payment and requires satisfaction of them for whom by his own acknowledgement Christ hath made that which is full and sufficient? Don't you love his preciseness? Hath God had second thoughts, he asks, and then calling them back for a second payment. Let them that can reconcile these things. I am no Oedipus. Oedipus, you'll know, was the mythical Greek king who solved the riddle of the Sphinx. Owen could not do that for them. If Christ has borne someone's punishment, it is impossible that that person will be punished as well. Christ is not incompetent. God is not unjust. Application. This is important for our assurance. Christ is not half a priest who will leave the job half done. He who began a good work in you and for you will bring it to completion. If this assurance is taken away, then in a rather lovely expression, he says, we will be like Noah's dove in her distress, not knowing where to rest the soles of her feet. We are to depend on Christ to save us to the uttermost. And Owen says, may the good Lord help me to believe and adore this mystery. The last stage in redemptive history then, to which Owen takes us, is Christ's return and the eternal new heavens and the new earth that follow. So from Christ's second coming to eternity, when he shall no longer be priest. This might surprise you. When Christ returns, will we still have need for a priest? Owen says that the time is coming when the priesthood has fully and absolutely accomplished the end whereunto it was designed. Then shall the exercise of the priesthood of Christ cease with his whole mediatory work and office. Likewise, the new covenant even. When we come to heaven and the full enjoyment of God, there shall be no use of any covenant anymore. Seeing we shall be in eternal rest, in the enjoyment of all the blessedness whereof our nature is capable. Christ will still be prophet, priest and king, but his mediatory work will be finished. Lastly, question four. What did Owen have to say about Melchizedek in particular? Uh, I'll give you just one word on this. And when I say one word, I mean it in the Owenian sense. Whenever he says that, you know that you've got at least a page still to read. And so have I. So I said that he wrote a lot about Melchizedek. There are about 400 references to him in the works. Here is a very quick summary. First, Melchizedek was the first priest mentioned in Scripture. Probably, says Owen, the first priest in the world. He was the principal type for Christ. Secondly, Melchizedek was like Christ, not only in his priestly office, but even in his person. He was the only, this is a quote, he was the only type of the person of Christ that ever was in the world. Others were types of Christ in the execution of his office, but none were ever types of his person. For he was made like unto the Son of God and represented his person, which none other did. Thirdly, that does not mean that Owen is willing to speculate beyond the bounds of scripture as to Melchizedek's identity. You might know that some have argued that Melchizedek was one of the persons of the Trinity. I think all three have been argued for, perhaps Christ incarnate. Some that he was an angelic being. Some even that he was Shem, Abraham's 
great, 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 great grandfather. Which is just about possible if you look at the durations of their lives. Owen rejects all of these, though, concluding that Melchizedek was an ordinary man, albeit a priest, and a righteous and peaceable king. Fourthly, as such, he was the most appropriate figure to represent Christ. There was no other priestly forerunner, asserts Owen, who was both king and priest. Fifthly, like all true priests, Melchizedek must be one who offers living sacrifices to God. For he that offereth not sacrifices to God is not a priest to him, for this is the principal duty of his office. Where do you think Melchizedek, Melchizedek got those living sacrifices from? Presumably, says Owen, from the tithe of the spoils given to him by Abraham. This must have included clean beasts fit for sacrifice, for herds of cattle were the main riches of those days, and these were the principal spoils of war. Abraham gave these to Melchizedek to offer in sacrifice for him. Speculation, maybe, consider. Owen says this partly to rebut the Catholic argument going round in his day, I don't know if it still is, that the bread and the wine that he brought out for Abraham was the true offering. What the Catholics were doing there is trying to give some credibility to their mass, says Owen, using Melchizedek's bloodless sacrifice uh, as a bolster for theirs. Owen says nonsense. He offered bread and wine because he was being hospitable as a king. He did not need to be a priest to do that. They were not sacrifices to God. Sixthly, all of these things mean that Melchizedek represents Christ better than did Aaron and his successors. All Old Testament priests are types of Christ, but Melchizedek's priesthood is far more excellent than the Aaronic. But he cautions, this is not to say that Christ's priesthood is strictly of some Melchizedekian order. Melchizedek did not found a priestly order as such. He was a one-off, that's the point. By saying Christ was of the order of Melchizedek, Owen is asserting that they bear an especial resemblance, not that Christ is a priest of the Melchizedekian order. Small point, maybe. Seventhly and lastly, Owen answers the chicken and the egg question. Who came first, Melchizedek or Christ? In terms of incarnation, the answer is obviously Melchizedek. But Melchizedek only has a place in Scripture because God intended that he should prefigure Christ. So Owen says, the priesthood of Christ in the mind of God was the eternal idea or original exemplar of the priesthood of Melchizedek. God brought him forth, brought Melchizedek forth, and vested him with his office in such a way and manner as that he might outwardly represent in sundry things the idea of the priesthood of Christ. So there's a good lesson there, picking up on Flavian's on uh, how scripture works. Christ and, the original, uh, Christ and the eternal idea of his priesthood came long before Melchizedek. And that completes our journey by taking us back to where we began in eternity. So just a couple of brief concluding applications. One thing that Owen invariably helps me to do by his clarity and his conciseness is to admire the coherency and the consistency of God's word and the plan of salvation. Owen had a remarkable ability to pull together and hold together a vast number of strands and to show how they formed a single beautiful tapestry, woven in eternity, manifested in Christ's priesthood, the principal foundation of the faith and consolation of the church. That is something that we should admire and for which we should be very thankful but we must not just admire the plan of salvation as if it were a beautiful artistic structure, though it is. Our admiration and joy must focus, as Owens did, on the person who undertook the plan on our behalf. So I'm going to finish with just some short quotations from Owen on that theme. The unspeakable blessings which the priesthood of Christ hath obtained for us are a strong obligation for the duty of praise and thanksgiving. Let him that would go to Christ consider well how Christ went to God for him. Truly the soul may say, bereave me of the satisfaction, meaning the atonement of Christ, 
and I am bereft. If Christ fulfilled not justice, I must. If he underwent not wrath, I must to eternity. We can never sufficiently admire the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in undertaking this office for us. To which I trust we will all say Amen.